Amen. Thank you for that. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter number 12 this evening. Mark chapter number 12. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach and uh, while pastor is away here. And thank you for giving me that chance. And I wanted to share something tonight uh, that's something that I'm passionate about, something that uh, the Lord dealt with me about. And, and hopefully, I know tonight maybe... Uh, this won't be new information, but I hope it will stir you and challenge you uh, in some way to uh, be more active in this particular area. Uh, but I want to look here at Mark chapter number 12, and we'll read just a few verses. And so if you would please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter number 12, and we'll begin reading in verse number 13. The Bible says, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Then they ask him a question here. They say, Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thank you. You may be seated. Here we have in this passage, uh, just to give you a little bit of the context here, prior to this encounter with the Pharisees, we see Jesus... Uh, like he was found doing often, is teaching parables about the kingdom of God. And he's describing to those who are following, what the, following him what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And the Pharisees, they're off to the side, they're listening, they're scheming, as they often did. And it says here that they're devising a plan, look at verse 13, to catch him in his words. To catch him in his words. They were trying to entrap Jesus. They were trying to get him to slip up. And what exactly were they trying to catch him saying? Well, the Bible gives us a little bit of insight into this here in Mark. Uh, this account is found in two of the other Gospels as well. But verse 13 tells us that there were some other people that were present with the Pharisees. Look here in verse 13. It says, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. The Herodians, who were they? Well, they were influential Jewish followers of Herod, the ruler over uh, Jerusalem in that area. And so this was actually a very odd combination because historically the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. They didn't like each other. Oddly enough, the main thing that they disagreed over was taxes, which is the very question they're getting ready to present to Jesus, uh, that the very topic they're getting ready to present to Jesus. And so they disagreed on the issue of taxation, but here's the thing. They did agree on one thing. And the thing that they agreed on was the political goal that they each shared, and that was to arrest and to kill Jesus. And so the Jews asked Jesus, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And their question really is surrounding this issue of a poll tax in that day, it was a poll tax that virtually all Jews had agreed on uh, that they opposed it. And so by presenting Jesus with this question, with the audience that he had around them, he, they were thinking that they're going to put Jesus in a pretty tough spot. 
Because here's Jesus, he's surrounded by a Jewish multitude, and, and if he tells them that, no, it's not lawful to give uh, tribute to Caesar, everybody's going to be like, yeah, Jesus, just let us off the hook. We don't have to pay taxes this year. This is going to be awesome. They would have all been excited, but you know who wouldn't have been excited? The Herodians. And you know what they would have done? They would have gone right back to Caesar and told him, hey, this is Jesus. He's telling these Jews they don't have to pay taxes. But on the other hand, if he said, yes, you do have to pay taxes, well, then all the crowds would have been upset. They would be like, wait a second, what are you talking about? You're the Messiah. Didn't you come to free us from Roman bondage? Didn't you come to, to let us free from this? Now you're telling us that we have to pay taxes? And so it was a tough spot humanly. You see, the Pharisees, what they were trying to do in this question they were posing to Jesus was to create a false dichotomy. You see, in their mind... The kingdom that Jesus was teaching about, the kingdom of God that he had been sharing parables of and this uh, earthly kingdom, the Roman Empire, they weren't compatible. The two couldn't exist at the same time. They were mutually exclusive. I mean, if this was the Messiah, and, and again, you have to understand, the Jews didn't understand the fact that there would be two comings. That the first coming, Jesus wasn't come to rule and to reign physically. And so in their minds, this Messiah, he would be the one that would come to deliver them. And so if he's talking about the kingdom of God and he's the Messiah, he's got to come and deliver us from the Romans. And so the Roman kingdom and his kingdom can't coexist. And so to, to them, exposing this was their ticket to getting Jesus arrested and killed. The only problem was that wasn't the case. They didn't understand all that Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus' response to their question when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, it says they marveled at him. See, Jesus' response was that submission to government, even the Roman government, was valid because it had been established by God, And I'm going to explain all this here in a second, but I want you to track with me. Think about this. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. If you're familiar with Romans chapter 13, it talks a lot about authority and the government. It says, let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well, for this is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And so what Jesus is teaching here in this statement is that obedience to God is not the antithesis of submission to government. He's not saying it's one or the other. In fact, he's really saying that there's no conflict between the two, that our relationship to government he's, is actually a part of our relationship to God. Think about this the Pharisees were stunned when, they, and it says that they marveled at him. Because, again, they couldn't comprehend how these two things could exist. But Jesus, in saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God's, he was really recognizing the authority and the legitimacy of the Roman government, as awful as that was. He wasn't opposing it. He wasn't saying uh, rebel against it. But, you know, ultimately, unfortunately, it seems that many Christians today have forgotten the teachings of Jesus. 
Many Christians today have created this false dichotomy uh, when it comes to uh, their understanding of the government. And oftentimes it's based on a misunderstanding or a misguided belief of this issue of the separation between church and state. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's one that uh, the progressives like to throw around a lot. But Christians today have gone into a ditch just like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees, they created this ditch that the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world can't coexist. And, and here we are again now, Christians today have created this new ditch where they live and where they believe uh, that you have to keep your religion and your politics separate from one, each, one another. That the two can't uh, mix with one another. They, they've forsaken their role in government in the name of Christianity. Many Christians today believe that the pulpit and the church is no place for politics. People will visit a church, and if the pastor talks about anything political, they're like, well, wait, wait a second, that's off limits at church. You're not allowed to talk about politics at church. You're not allowed to talk about government things at church. Uh, they, they don't think that those things should go together. There are many that argue that because of the corruption in government and the secular nature of politics, that Christians should not engage or participate in government. But we have to recognize, and this is key here, that in our Republican form of governance, a government that, if, if you know anything about it, and hopefully you do, uh, it derives its authority from the consent of the governed. You remember Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address, he talked about our government being a government that's of, by, and for the people. That's where, that's where the basis of the authority of our government comes from. And so if you take that truth and you apply it to the context of this passage that we find here in Mark chapter 12, what you'll, what you'll arrive at is that when Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, in our republican form of government, you could say it this way, render unto we the people the things that are we the people's. In this, if we were to apply that to our government today, that Caesar is we the people. And so if we intend to obey Christ's command to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that means that we can't escape our civic duties. We can't neglect to do the things uh, that we're supposed to do in a representative republic like ours and still fulfill all of our service to God. Amen. It's part of it. And so tonight I want to look at, if you want to take notes here, I wrote down three facets of the believer and his government. The believer and his government. There's three things I want us to consider tonight. Number one, I want you to notice the involvement of believers in government. The involvement of believers in government. One of the trends that we see here in our country today is the lack of involvement of Christians in the political process. You know, although voting is one of the easiest to fulfill of all of our civic duties. I mean, checking a box at the ballot box, that's a whole lot easier than jury duty. I don't know. That's my opinion. Uh, it's one of the easiest of our civic duties to do, but of the approximately 60 to 80 million self-proclaimed evangelicals, did you know that only 50% of them vote? And of the other 50% that don't vote, half of them aren't even registered to vote. Imagine the influence that evangelicals would have if the majority of Christians voted according to their values, Amen. voted according to the things that they say that they believed. Some Christians would argue that politics are dirty, that Christians shouldn't get involved in such a godless area. And they read verses like, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And in their minds, they've separated the two things, just like the Pharisees did. 
They say, oh, he's saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God's. The two have to be separate. And in their minds, maybe you know people like this, they've created two categories. There are things that are secular and then there are things that are spiritual. They say, well, you know, I'm not going to get involved in things that are secular. I'm only going to get involved in things that are spiritual. And, and that's a, a noble attitude to have, but they, 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 they argue that Christians shouldn't be involved in secular things. And they read those words and they arrive at the same place that the Pharisees did, where they've divided the two and they're trying to pick a side, but that's not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus wasn't teaching that the two are divided. Again, in saying the statement that he made, he's recognizing the legitimacy of the Roman government to collect taxes from his followers. Jesus didn't evade his taxes. Jesus paid his taxes. He encouraged his followers to pay taxes, just like they were supposed to do here in this scripture. He was recognizing that there was a responsibility that each of us have as it relates to the government under which we find ourselves. And if you were going to try to negate the responsibility we have based upon how good or bad a government was, I would think that people in Jesus' day would have a great excuse not to follow their government. I think they'd have a great excuse not to pay taxes. I mean, look at what their money's going to. It's killing people, starting wars all over the place, persecuting Christians. I don't have to give my tax money to that, but that's not what Jesus did. He didn't give them an out. And you know, here's another thing. The Bible doesn't teach that there's this divide necessarily between spiritual things and secular things. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that for the believer, unless it's explicitly stated as a sinful area that should be avoided, everything the believer does is of spiritual significance. Everything that we do should be spiritual. Think about this, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And whatsoever ye do, what does it say? Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Think about this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We know it. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, it says, do all to the glory of God. He doesn't make a divide whether you, therefore you eat or drink or all the spiritual things you do do to the glory of God. No, he doesn't say it. It's whatsoever we do. And it's interesting to me that the Christians who avoid political involvement because it's secular have no issue with a career that may be secular, with their child's sports team that may be secular, with their hobbies that may be secular. They don't have any problems involving themselves in those things, but when it comes to politics, they don't want to be engaged. Perhaps if those believers were as equally engaged in the culture war that's taking place in our country, we wouldn't find ourselves in the mess that we're in. I would contend that if politics and government is corrupt, it's because Christians have abandoned it. They've forsaken it. Adrian Rogers, the preacher, he once said, God created human government it is therefore inconceivable that God would create a government and then tell his people to stay out of it any more than he would ordain the family and tell us not to get involved. You think about the scriptures, some of the beginning books of the Bible, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The main theme around that is law and government. All throughout the Bible, we find examples of God's people engaged and involved in their governments. I mean, you think about most of the heroes of the Old Testament were involved in government. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, King David, King Solomon, Daniel, Esther, the judges, all were involved in, in government in some way, with some of them even serving in official capacities. We see that all throughout the Bible in the New Testament. You think about some of Jesus' disciples. 
Matthew, remember what he was? He was a tax collector. He was a government official. You think about Nicodemus, another follower and convert of Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That would have been equivalent to our Supreme Court. At his trial, you think about Jesus. One of the things that he did was he reminded Pilate of where his power originated from. He reminded him uh, where that, that power that he had came from, that it came ultimately from God. John 19, verses 10 and 11. Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. He said, listen, the power that you have, it came from above. And my point is this, is that over and over in Scripture, you know what we find? We find believers involved in their government. We find believers engaged and taking an active role in the governments under which they found themselves living in various forms. And so we see the involvement of believers. But number two, I wrote down the importance of believers in government. The importance of believers in government. Now you might be thinking, well, all right, I get it. You know, there have been believers involved in politics. But Brother Cherry, don't you know this world's not my home? I'm just passing through. My treasure's laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know, there are a lot of Christians that have that attitude. Hey, we're citizens of heaven. Why do I need to worry about what happens down here? You know, I've got a home in heaven. I've got eternity. But why should I even care about government or politics at all? And in one sense, you're correct. The Apostle Paul does tell us in Philippians, our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for our, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, uh, Jesus told us in Matthew. He said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through or steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither raw, moth, moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasures there will your heart be also. I get that. That's Bible. That's scriptural things. And, and I'll be honest with you. When you consider your earthly citizenship in light of your heavenly citizenship, when you consider your time in eternity and how short our time is here on earth, I mean, our, our responsibility to our civic duties seems so trivial. It pales in comparison to the citizenship that we have in heaven. But I'll tell you what, that doesn't excuse the responsibilities that we have to it. Just because we're going to spend longer somewhere else doesn't mean we shouldn't, what we do here on earth doesn't matter. Otherwise, we'd be with the Lord right now. Our time on earth has significance. There are responsibilities that God has given us while we're here. And Daniel Webster made a great point. He said, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. And if we're good Christians, that ought to translate into our civic duties as well. Think about the Apostle Paul. He understood the believer's civic responsibilities. Remember, he was the one that wrote to the Romans. Those who were there at the capital of where uh, the Roman government was. And he wrote Romans 13. He was the one that was instructing these believers in Rome about their obligations as citizens of Rome. By the way, the type of government that they were under, this was, this was ruthless government. This was a cruel government. There were dictators that would persecute the Christians for believing in Christ as the Messiah. And yet Paul reminds them, render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Those that were persecuting him, Paul says, hey, listen, you still have a responsibility as a citizen of Rome. There's still responsibilities that you have to your government. On a number of occasions, the Apostle Paul, he invoked his rights as a Roman citizen. 
You think about in Acts chapter 25 and verse 11, he said, For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof ye, uh, these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. And, and you remember what he said? He said, I appeal to Caesar. He was invoking a right that he had as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. Again, in Acts chapter 28 and verse 19, he appealed to Caesar. You think about the Apostle Paul. He found himself in a lot of uh, positions where he was before government officials. And every time he took the opportunity to, to engage them with the gospel. He did that with King Agrippa. He did that with Governor Felix and Governor Festus. And ultimately Caesar himself. Paul didn't isolate himself from the government. He didn't act like he had no civic responsibilities. Uh, he, he wasn't too spiritually minded to get involved. And even though his opportunities as a Roman citizen under, under that form of government were way fewer than ours, he was still involved. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so if Jesus expected those in his day to fulfill their duties to government. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter recognized and respected the duties of earthly citizens. Why is it that Christians today don't seem to understand the importance of their responsibility when it comes to their civic government? James chapter 4 and verse 17 tells us, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I would say that we can't willfully neglect our civic responsibilities and claim to be right with God. We can't neglect and willfully neglect doing the things that we know we're supposed to do and say that we're right with God because to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The evangelist Charles Finney told some of his fellow preachers, he said, politics are a part of a religion in such a country as this and Christians must do their duty to the country as a part of their duty to God. Christians seem to act as if they think God does not see what they do in politics. But I tell you, he does see it. And he will bless or curse this nation according to the course Christians take. I mean, you think about it. If Christians take a back seat in their civic duty, who's left to run the country? Who's left, who's left to govern? Well, it's going to be those that don't uphold biblical values. It's going to be those who hate God. Remember what James Adams, one of the James Adams, one of the founding fathers, said. He said that our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. He said it was wholly inadequate to the government of any other. It relies upon Christians to be involved. But if Christians are going to sit idly by and allow lost people who hate God to run our country, then it should come as no surprise that these unbelievers would try to undermine the Christian values that have upheld our republic for the last 246 years. Early in our country's history, it's interesting to go back and read about some of the early preachers in America and the stance that they took and that it was, it was not uncommon for churches and pastors to preach on current issues. It wasn't uncommon for them to declare from their pulpit biblical perspectives on issues like government, like elections, like all of the things that we find in our Constitution. It wasn't uncommon for pastors to have election sermons. It wasn't uncommon for pastors to preach to the legislators on a regular basis. Christians were the ones who guided those conversations. They were the ones who led uh, in, on those issues, and they led from a biblical perspective. 
I believe that's why God blessed our country the way that he did. Christians were well-informed biblically. They were well-informed historically. They were well-informed culturally. Today, though, too many pastors and too many churches are afraid to speak on those issues. They're afraid that in speaking to them that they're going to offend the hearers. I know personally of churches in Newton County who won't come near the life issue because they have well-to-do congregants who are pro-choice. There are churches all across our land who are afraid to preach what the Bible says when it comes to the issue of marriage, when it comes to the issue of gender identity. Listen, the church should be a place where Christians receive well-reasoned Bible perspectives on current issues. The church should be uh, where you come to hear uh, what we should be thinking about these things. But if the church isn't doing its job, then it's no surprise uh, that people turn to mainstream media for their opinions and turn to mainstream media for their information. Churches have been silent on these issues and those who don't embrace biblical worldviews have eagerly filled the vacuum of the silence that's been created in our pulpits. Remember, Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christians are to be salt and light in the world that they live in. We're to be the moral compass for our nation. And a government that's devoid of light only leads to greater darkness. It's imperative that we're involved. Speaking of this idea of separation in church and state, progressives love to preach on that. They don't want you talking about politics in church. Now, have you noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this trend, but more and more there, there are topics that are off limits when it comes to churches. Right? They've, they've labeled these, these aren't Bible, these are political issues. You're not allowed to talk about political issues. And so they've politicized everything so that you're not allowed to talk about them and and people are turned off when they hear about those things in church. But you know, every issue is a Bible issue. Every issue is a Bible issue. They don't want you talking about marriage because marriage, well, that's a political issue. They don't want you talking about life because, well, that's a political issue. They don't want you talking about gender and education because those are political issues. But you know, every issue is a Bible issue. The Bible has something to say about every one of those topics and Christians ought to be speaking boldly to those things. We shouldn't let people intimidate us into not speaking truth. We shouldn't let people intimidate us into sharing what we believe and standing for the things that we say that we believe. You know, if you read the Constitution, you know what you're not going to find? A wall of separation between church and state. I'll give you a little history lesson tonight in case you're not aware of it. But that phrase... It wasn't found in an official government document. Do you know that? It was found in a letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut. The Baptist had written a letter to Thomas Jefferson congratulating him on being elected to the office of president. But in their letter, they also shared some of their concerns. They shared their concerns over government encroachment on the matters of religion. 
And so Thomas Jefferson replied back and he assured them that the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights recognized their right to practice religion as their conscience dictated. And he referenced there being a wall of separation between church and state. And that wall of separation between church and state wasn't there to keep our faith out of the public square. It wasn't there to keep our faith out of the public schools. It was there to keep federal government from doing precisely what they're doing today and encroaching upon our practice of religion. How we practice religion, when we practice our religion. And those in positions of power today are using the guise of this separation between church and state to weaponize the federal government against believers. I mean, you think about just a few years ago with COVID. The government unilaterally, and not even those who were elected, decided that church is not essential. They decided when your church could be open, when your church couldn't be open, where you could open, where you could gather, where you couldn't gather. Who would have thought that in America the FBI would be trying to infiltrate Catholic churches who are pro-life and pro-traditional marriage because they have a radical and dangerous ideology? Who would have thought that? And I can promise you, if they're willing to target traditional Catholics, just wait until they learn what an independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptist is. We're, I mean, you're next. Listen, if you're a parent that believes you ought to have a say in the education of your child, and you have the audacity to show up to a board of education meeting and speak your mind, you're a domestic terrorist. How have we arrived at this position? Because for too long, too many Christians in the United States have been living in fear afraid to stand up for what is right, and we've silently agreed to keep our faith a private matter. We've agreed that we're not going to talk about it in public. We're going to keep it out of the, the public square, and we've assumed that as followers of Christ, we're supposed to lay down our rights. Hey, can I tell you, you were supposed to lay down your rights, but at the feet of Jesus, not the request of the government. You have a God-given right to love the Lord and to serve Him and that's a right that our founding documents recognize as unalienable. And now, more than ever, we need to exercise those rights. And so we see the involvement of believers. We see the importance of believers. But then notice, lastly here, the impact of believers in government. The impact of believers in government. You know, in addition to our responsibility as good citizens, we also are required to be good stewards of the gifts that God gives us. We're to be good stewards of the things that God has given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. James chapter 1 verse 17 reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I think that we could all agree this evening that the freedom and the liberty that we have in our country, that's a good gift. That's a good gift, and by extension, it's a direct blessing from God. God has blessed us with that liberty. God has blessed us with that freedom. The question is, how are we doing stewarding that gift that God has given us? How are we doing? John Jay, the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, noted the great liberty and gift that Americans had been given. He said, the Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of deliberating upon and choosing the form of government under which they should live. We're a blessed people. Never in the history of the world had people been given that opportunity. 
And the Bible does tell us in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of, the, of him, they will ask the more. There are a lot of Christians that have this attitude, well, Jesus is coming soon. There's not much we can do at this point. And so they refuse to do anything. But what happens when the, if the Lord tarries his coming? What happens if he doesn't come as soon as you think he's coming? Who's left to inherit the government and the country that you've neglected? Your children, your grandchildren. American Christians have become so desensitized to the things that don't directly affect them. Unless it's in my own backyard, unless the issue hits close to home to me, we don't even really take interest. It's almost as if our attitude is, well, as long as it doesn't affect me, I don't care. As long as it doesn't affect my finances, as long as it doesn't interfere with my life, as long as it doesn't affect me at my job, as long as it doesn't affect my family, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's been rightly observed that American founders were willing to sacrifice their own prosperity for their posterity, but today's Christians are willing to sacrifice their posterity for their own prosperity. We're so self-centered. We just want to be left alone. We want to have somebody else clean up the mess after we're gone. As long as none of the really bad stuff happens in my lifetime, that's all that matters to me. And who's left to hold the bag? Many Christians, based on their apathetic and hands-off approach, seem perfectly content to just let their children and their grandchildren deal with the issues. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 25, every one of us are going to give an account to God for how we stewarded the talents that, we, that were entrusted to us. I wonder what will he think of American Christians when he evaluates how we invested or squandered the talents of liberty that he so graciously gave us. As I stated earlier, there are approximately 60 to 80 million self-professed evangelicals and only 50% of which vote. Can you imagine? Just think about it. The difference 30 to 40 million votes would make in an election. There's no reason that engaged Christians shouldn't have a voice in our government. There's no reason that engaged Christians shouldn't have a significant voice in the things that happen and who's in leadership. The problems facing our country seem so numerous and overwhelming at times that it's difficult to even know where to begin. Maybe you watch the news and hear about all the things that are happening. You're like, man, where do we even start? But you know, that's exactly what the enemy is counting on. He's counting on God's people to just give up. To not do anything. And so what can be done? How can we as Christians have an impact on the government under which we find ourselves? I just wrote down three words. If you want to write these down, maybe they'll be helpful to you. But I wrote down number one, we need to watch. We need to watch. Luke chapter 21 and verse 36 says, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus was encouraging his disciples to watch for the last days. He told them there's going to be signs, there are going to be things that are going to be taking place to, to be aware of the times in which they were living. And the first thing that we as believers ought to be doing is to be watching. You know, one of the reasons that believers feel like things are spiraling out of control so rapidly is because they haven't been paying attention. They haven't been, uh, be, been watching uh, for what's happening around here. I mean, the issues that we face today, they're not new. They've been in the works for years. This isn't just something new uh, that popped up, but it seems now that the problems are too impossible to ignore, and so we face it everywhere we turn. 
I mean, it's just thrown in our face. You can't even avoid some of these issues. But we have to be vigilant. We can't let our guard down for a moment. We need to understand the times in which we live. And here's another thing. We need to understand the issues of our day and to be able to view them through the lens of Scripture. We need to know not just what are the issues, but what does the Bible have to say about the issues? How, how many of you believe the Bible has something to say about every area of your life? Right, of course it does. And so we need to understand what does the Scripture have to say? Listen, the Bible, not our feelings, not our upbringing, not our political party, the Bible should shape our worldview. The Bible should shape the way that we see things. Hey, listen, as Christians, we don't get our talking points from the RNC or the DNC. We get them from the BIBLE. We get them from the Bible. We need to understand the current events in light of Scripture. That means that we need to be committed students of God's Word. We need to study the Bible. We need to know what it says. We need to understand the Scriptures and how they apply to the issues of our day. We need to know how to think biblically and critically about the news that we read and the news that we watch. We should be asking ourselves on a regular basis, does Scripture have anything to say about this subject? Are there biblical principles that should be informing how I think about this issue? We need to learn to see also the trends and not just the isolated events. You need to recognize that the things that happen, they're part of a greater trend that is taking place. You think about Roe versus Wade. It was a single court decision that in a moment altered the fabric of America, but it didn't just come out of thin air. It was part of a trend. And we need to be able to watch and so that we can learn and see what's likely to occur if we fail to act. What are the consequences if we don't get involved? What are the consequences if we're not engaged in this argument? We're not putting a voice out there for what the Bible says. We need to watch. But not only that, we need to pray. We need to pray. You know, we live in a dark world. And there's millions who live under the delusion that Satan has propagated. And the longer that we live, the more evil our world may become. And it can seem sometimes as if things are too far gone. It can seem as if there's no use in fighting anymore for good in such an evil world. Someone said, though, that when your faith begins with a man that was beaten and scourged and crucified and, and came walking out of an empty tomb three days later, the words fear and hopelessness are in your vocabulary. We serve a living God. And when we pray, we're praying to that living God. We're accessing that resurrection power uh, that's available to us. And so if we're going to impact the world in which we live, prayer is a critical component. We can't do it without prayer. Prayer must be central to everything we do. I mean, if we try to push back on the evil in our own world, no matter how hard we work, no matter how strategic we are, no matter how many people we might convince, we'll fail if we do it on our own. The only way that culture is going to change is if God brings a revival to our land. And can I remind you of that promise in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and verse 14? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and what? Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their lands. You know, without the, the Lord's help, we might succeed in pushing back things like CRT, but it's only going to be replaced with something even more vile and destructive. Without the Lord's help, we might even end legalized abortion in America. But until we have a, but until, um, we have a culture that recognizes and submits to the author of life, we're never going to have a culture of life. 
And so if we want to see real change come to America, we need men and women who are prayer warriors. We need people who are praying for America. You know, we like to talk about the problems in America, but I wonder, when's the last time you spent serious time praying for America? When's the last time you prayed for revival to come to America? When's the last time you prayed for an awakening to the truth of God's word? Do we talk more about the problems than we pray about the problems? If we're going to make an impact, it's not going to come through talking about it. We need to be praying about it. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6 and verse 10. He said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to be praying for God's will in heaven to be accomplished here on earth. But, you know, when we get up off of our knees, it's time for us to live out that prayer. We shouldn't just be praying about it and then going about and doing nothing. We should be praying, God, we want your will in heaven to be accomplished here on earth. But then we need to be allowing God to use our actions and use the influence that he's given us to see that accomplished. Someone said there ought to be no distance between our prayers and our actions. We shouldn't pray one thing and then do nothing about it. If we're going to pray sincerely about it, we should put actions to our prayers as well. We need to uh, watch. We need to pray. But then the last thing I wrote down is we need to vote. We need to vote. And let me say this, too, about that. Though we look for a change in America, we're not looking for a Savior. We already have one. His name's Jesus. And so when we go to the ballot box, we're not electing a Messiah. We're not electing a Savior. We're not electing a pastor. A biblical approach to voting recognizes that God established the government. And we also understand that the government is far too inadequate to answer man's deepest problems. We understand that the spiritual problems of man cannot be solved politically. And so when we vote, we're not voting for a savior. We're not voting for a pastor. We're voting for the one that we believe will best lead our country and uphold the values which we believe. Jesus calls us to follow him each and every day. He calls us to surrender every area of our life, not just parts of our life, every area, and that includes our civic duty. And so rather than thinking of our political engagement as a separate category, like some do, we ought to view our political engagement, our civic engagement, as an extension of our faith, as a way that we uh, show our faith in another area. What we believe should invariably spill into how we vote. That's why it's troubling that there are so many people that confess biblical truth with their mouth, but then vote in the ballot box as if they've never read a word of Scripture. There's no political, the perfect political party. There's no perfect uh, uh, candidates either. We live in a fallen world led by fallen people. And until Jesus returns, guess what? There won't be any perfect rulers. And that's why it's ridiculous when people say, well, I don't know how a Christian could vote for them. Well, because we're not voting for a pastor. We're not voting for a perfect person. If a perfect person was on the ballot, I'd vote for him. You know, in America... Uh, uh, We we have a two-party system, meaning that historically the candidate that's elected comes from one or two parties. And so when you go to the ballot box, oftentimes it's a choice between one of those two parties. And it's really not a difficult choice to make. One party is pro-life. The other is for abortion on demand. One party wants America to fulfill the dream of its founding, to be a nation that recognizes that all men are created equal. The other party wants to rewrite the history books and pit one race against another. 
One party wants parents to be able to educate their children however they see fit. The other party wants to keep God out of the schools, wants to silence prayer in the classrooms, wants to deconstruct the meaning of Scripture to fit its postmodern agendas. And so the choice is not a difficult choice to make. But here's the other thing about voting. Voting doesn't just happen on the second Tuesday of November every four years. Voting happens every day. Every day we vote. We vote with our cho- the choices we make. We vote with the words that we speak. We vote with the actions that we, uh, the questions we ask. We vote with the dollars that we spend. You know, as Christians, we're ambassadors for Christ. And guess what? As ambassadors for Christ, you're never off duty. You're on duty all the time. And so voting, it happens every day. It happens when we speak truth to our family, our friends, our neighbor. We vote when we stand for what we believe in, in our communities and at the workplace. We vote when we refuse to accept the lies that come out of Hollywood and Silicon Valley and mainstream media. We vote every time we swipe our credit card or check out online. We're voting. We're voting for the status quo to remain the same or we're voting for change. And so take some time. You ought to take some time and research the companies uh, that share your values. You ought to find out what companies are are actively pursuing woke agendas. You ought to look for what companies are supporting organizations like Planned Parenthood and spend your money accordingly. Now, I understand it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to completely avoid every one of those companies. But here's the thing. Every dollar that shifted away is one less dollar that can be used to fund their philosophies that are tearing our country apart. The point is not to make our grocery shopping political, but it's to pursue the kind of world that we want to live in. See, the greatness of the impact of Christians, I believe, is going to be in direct proportion to our commitment to watch, pray, and vote. You know, these principles, they're principles our founders understood. They recognized the times in which they lived. They understood the trends of men. They understood history. And they understood that, hey, if we just replace one king with another, we're not going to stop the trend of tyranny. And so they created a government with a series of checks and balances. They were founders who were people of prayer. They prayed before their meetings. They committed their endeavors in this new nation to the Lord. They made regular appeals to heaven, recognizing the significance of the great task that they were undertaking. They also believed that our nation should be a nation that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. A nation where problems wouldn't be solved through violence or shouting, but places where you could debate civilly and and where the ballot box would set the course for the next season. They wanted people to vote. They wanted people to have a say in their government. And I believe we need to return to these principles. We need to be Christians who care about our children, who care about our communities, who care about our country enough to watch, to pray, and to vote. We need to recognize the importance of Christians in government and they need to be impacting our culture on a regular basis. And we can do it through those three things. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.